Welcome to the DLR Libraries podcast, Need to Read. Recommended reads from those in the know. Today I'm talking to Eva Kenny. Eva is a writer in Dublin. Her fiction, criticism and essays have been published in The Stinging Fly, The Irish Times, Art Forum, Freeze, The LA Review of Books, The Dublin Review of Books, Emma Magazine, Flash Art, Kaleidoscope, Brand New Life and Persona, amongst others. She holds a doctorate in literature from Princeton University and is at work at the moment on a debut collection of stories and essays. She is also currently running a reading and writing group at the Irish Writers' Centre, looking at the work of Irish women writers called Normal Women. So Eva, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Hayley. It's nice to be here. <laughs> it's nice to be anywhere at the moment. It sure, it sure is. It's nice to have you and see a new, a different face. Yeah. And, and a new face. Yeah. And a lovely face. And a face. <laughs> <laughs> and so I first met you when I took the first round of your course at the Irish Writers' Centre last year. It feels like ages ago. Um, and the subject matter of that course is what we're chatting about today, which is contemporary Irish women writers. So I'd already read a few of the books that prior to your course, and I bought... Um, the other ones before it started and I'm really happy with the collection of books discussing them in that depth with other people was lovely so I it's they feel quite special on my bookshelf now when I see mm. them all together <laughs> me too I kind of see them as a unit <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I loved the different reactions we had in the group as well because we had all different age groups mm-hmm. and they and being online allowed us to have different nationalities as well now you're doing round two which I wasn't able to make um but you're focusing on the the literary predecessors of the first group mm-hmm. um the young ones uh so you mentioned something really interesting to me recently about some of those books um for example Edna O'Brien and Nula Fuelan um you, you said that they could have been written today um maybe you could tell me a little bit about that observation and how that that round of the course is going as well yeah um well Edna O'Brien's book The Country Girls you know they're markers of the time but it's a book that, yeah, I think. Maybe that's not your key observation. This, <laughs> this part is going to be edited for sure. <laughs> well, no, I think there is something about the the sexual morality of Edna O'Brien's book. Um, the depiction of friendships, the characters and the... Well, I'm trying to think if it could have been written today or if it was very, very, very specifically <laughs> written in the time that it was written in. Maybe you but, said that off the cuff to me <laughs> and I made it um, intri- intro yeah. question. Well, okay, so the reason for doing the second course, I mean, the first course at the Irish Writers' Centre, it was supposed to be called Normal Girls. Um, yeah, because I was going to ask, like, so it, you, it came from Sally Rooney's book. Um, idea or it came from the title of Sally Rooney's book Normal People and something that was occurring to me in the reading of these books um so in the books and so the books on the first course were Exciting Times by Nisha Dolan Sally Rooney's Normal People um Don't Touch My Hair by Emma Dabery Notes to Self by Emily Pine Constellations by Sinead Gleeson and This Happy by Neve Campbell. So three novels and three recent books of essays, uh, first person narrative. Emma Dabry's book is part memoir, part sociological um, history. Um, but there's something 
that came up in all of the books, which was the narrator in the novels or the the first person in the nonfiction books, seeing themselves somehow um, outside of a norm of Irish society or outside of a kind of normal, um, conventional um, set of relations, um, set of accepted codes, set of family structures and so on. Um, And so for various reasons um, to do with sexuality, um, to do with race, um, to do with health, ability, disability, um, status as a mother or not a mother. It seemed that what is normal in Irish society was defined by an extremely close and rigid set of rules. Um, And part of the reason that I wanted to read these books is because I had moved back from living outside of Ireland for 12 or more years. And there was this explosion of writing by Irish women and there were just so many new books being published and it seemed as if this dam had burst and all of these women, um, I mean, helped enormously in fiction by Sally Rooney's huge success um, of her novels. Um, But even within the domestic market books that may not have made a kind of like huge global um, uh, impact, um, it just seemed that there was so much coming out and so much being published. And I started to kind of think of these books or this genre as reports from the patriarchy or reports on the patriarchy or the state of the patriarchy in Ireland in the 20... 17s on or something like that. Uh, That's so, catchy. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Um, that was the working title of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so just from different um different perspectives, I just I wanted to consider them as a group of books rather than individually. Mm-hmm. Um because in our over-individualized late capitalist society where everyone, even more now in a coronavirus, is like spending an awful lot of time by themselves. These books, I think, are being considered one by one um, as uh, they're all written by women either through fiction or through nonfiction as one individual's sense of their aloneness, sense of their own marginalization, sense of their own, um, you know, inability to perform as normal in society or something like that. Um, And I think, you know, when you have one book that's about that, fine. But when you have, you know, like 15 to 20 books that are all about women feeling that somehow they're not measuring up to an ideal or a standard. Uh, Something's wrong. <laughs> you want to ask, you know, what what are we doing to these young ladies? Are you all okay? Yeah. 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 Um, and so... Because I was going to ask you what mm. made you choose these ones in particular, but you kind of answered it there, I guess. So you felt there was a similar kind of crying out from each of those in any way Mm. um well like in a way it was just because these are the books that are being published so these are and you know they're the books that are being published by i mean i'm not a snob about literary fiction versus popular fiction versus you know chick lit or women's fiction or whatever um but they're also the books that are being published by 
very reputable presses, you know, they're reviewed, they're taken seriously, they're works of literary fiction or literary nonfiction. Um, so they're the books that are, you know, they're, they're being chosen as representative mm. of, you know, these are what, uh, yeah. the books that are um, intersecting with the issues of the day or have a kind of... Um, have a, a take on society yeah yeah I don't know if I answered the first question but to answer your question um about the course at the writer center the course that I did last autumn at the writer center um normal girls they wouldn't let me call it normal girls because they were worried that we that the writer center would be done for misogyny so we called it normal <laughs> women <laughs> so that was okay. fine. So it was called Normal Women. But the books that I chose, they are books about girlhood or mm. to a certain extent, the novels are Bildungsromance. So yeah. they're a coming, they're a coming of age novel in this happy, normal people and exciting times mm. and notes to self, constellations and don't touch my hair. They're about girlhood. Mm-hmm. So the six books are about girls and the formation of girls in Ireland Mm -hmm. during a particular time in the kind of like contemporary slash modern period um and so each one of them whether that's through describing scenes from their youths in Don't Touch My Hair uh Emma Dabry talks about growing up in Dublin um Emily Pine talks about her youth and um Sinead Gleeson talks about her youth and then in the novels it's like they are they're like these coming of age stories so Mm -hmm. um the sort of the moral education and sexual education kind of growth Mm -hmm. uh story and so there is something I think particularly in the novels that I mean I was interested in all of them but I'm interested in how that particular form of novel takes place in the present um Mm -hmm. what like what we see these characters learning uh, and what is particularly Irish about those stories. Mm-hmm. So will we start maybe with, with, we'll do a little bit on each of the books. Yeah, yeah. Um, so which book should we, will we start, will we start with Normal People because, um, yeah. um, geez, I mean, it's kind of seems like the obvious place to start. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's the first book we did in your course as well. Yes. Um, so it was first purely for the reason that I thought everyone would have already read it. So it didn't uh, require a huge amount of lead up time um, because, uh, you know, the sign up and the first class are like quite close together. Um, Yeah, I mean, I really don't feel qualified to say something about normal people that hasn't already been said or written about. That's what I wrote down. What what can we say about Rooney that hasn't already been said? I did love that Eneve Campbell mentioned, she said a phrase, uh, Rooney Sphere, Sphere in her article, that was funny. Um, But it is kind of like, once she got published, it kind of just drew attention to all, all these Irish women writers, which, which, is, which is great, you know. But I suppose then a lot of them suffer the comparison thing, which has also been talked about loads. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think also when we did the course last fall, it was after a summer of, um, I mean, Normal People, the TV series, was sort of the biggest thing to happen 
in the mm. country, if not the world, <laughs> during, um, <laughs> during lockdown in the summer of 2020. Yeah, um, I've that, never and the, seen the Tiger show, which I haven't seen. Oh yeah, then. I actually didn't watch that. It just sort of passed me by. Yeah. But I was so consumed by yeah reading and watching normal people that I didn't <laughs> care about tigers or anything else happening over there. And it was something that I think you know, like in Ireland, um, you know, like which is an island, and uh, suddenly everybody watching a TV show set in Ireland about growing up in Ireland and dating and continuing to go out with the person from your small town where you grew up. I mean, it was almost that in combination with no traffic and everyone outside <laughs> exercising. It was like De Valera's fantasy yeah. of Ireland or something. Everyone was suddenly... Uh, yeah. And I think the effect that the TV show had on... I think an older generation who are maybe at home for the first time, having yeah. you know retired and suddenly being in lockdown with their yeah. partners of fifty years and watching uh, yeah. these. Uh, I love the uh, what Netflix has done. It wasn't on Netflix, though, was it? I think it was Hulu. Oh right, one of my points. Edison, no. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of everyone. Everyone watching something at the same time. And yeah. Obviously, that's what TV always was. Right. Right. Um, exactly. But we kind of lost that a little bit. Yeah. So, but yeah. now I think streaming services have brought that back a bit like um if you use a vpn and you see what, what the americans are watching yeah, yeah. you know a lot of them are watching the same things that we're watching on those shows mm-hmm. on those um streaming sites so I, I always find that like kind of really comforting or something it makes the world feel a bit smaller and mm-hmm. um, so yeah she it was like the whole world was watching it yeah you know? yeah it was the moon landing yeah <laughs> of 2020 um, sort of can we say about the book I, I mean like you say it hasn't been said well um, the reason that I wanted to read it for this class um I mean I've read it I suppose three or four times now I love it I just unashamedly love it I love conversations with friends yeah. I loved the tv show I cried constantly I, yeah I think time. Lenny Abrahamson is just incredible yeah and I yeah. think his episodes the first six were really I mean mm-hmm. I I really love his work. Um, but, um, and I think every woman in Ireland has read Normal People mm-hmm. and maybe 4% of Irish men have read it or something. Yeah, like yeah. there's a, there's a marked contrast in my like very yeah. casual, like demographic <laughs> polling <laughs> of, uh, of who, who exactly has read this book. Um, yeah. but I was, Interested in it for a number of reasons, and again, in the context of these other books. So I wanted to talk in the course about the patriarchy, the structure of Irish patriarchy, the Irish structure of patriarchy. Um, And fathers have a really strange and absent and ominous role in all of these books, whether in Mm -hmm. fiction or nonfiction. I think maybe with the exception of Sinead Gleeson's book. Um, But... Does she have a nice dad? Is she? <laughs> um, I can't remember anything about him, which yeah. makes me think that he. Well, I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> I just because I, I was, you know, like my spidey senses were kind of attuned to looking out for fathers in these yeah. books after a certain point, and I just yeah. don't recall that being on my radar in Sinead mm-hmm. Leeson's book. Um, but I just in yeah, they're not mentioned. In the other ones, are they? Um, when I think of Exciting Times, I think I, I know her mum was in the... Yeah, in the, the father yeah. in Exciting Times is a very remote figure who I think occasionally will come to the phone for a word. Mm-hmm. Um, the 
character, the narrator in Exciting Times lives in Hong Kong, where she's a teacher of English as a second language and has a close relationship to her mother and a warm relationship to her mother over the phone. And uh, and her father is very, very absent. Um, Mm -hmm. And in normal people, there's a much more ominous version, the father. So there are no fathers at all in normal people. Um, Marianne's father is dead. He was a violent, abusive alcoholic. Um, and Connell's father is not on the scene. He's raised Mm -hmm. by a single mother. Um, And so within, so the structure is neither of them have fathers. There are two sons. So Marianne has a brother who's also violent, abusive. Um, The treatment of the, the sons in the novel compared to the treatment of the daughter interested me um so I think it to me there was something there was something very accurate in that depiction although not always to such an extreme but I think the treatment of male children versus female children Mm -hmm. in um in Ireland and maybe this is a huge generalization but I felt that Sally Rooney captured something of like he's the boy, give him the big potato or like, yes, you know, give him, yes. give him an extra chop. Like yeah. the, the, the relationship between Marianne's mother and Marianne, you know, she's extremely cold. Um, there's a very punitive, distant, nasty relationship that sort of culminates in her, you know, being ignored on the street and, um, and being sort of evicted and, you know, yeah. the relationship we see kind of coming to an end um compared to the relationship that that same mother has with her son which is um a much more kind of protective and kind of creepily enmeshed and mm. sort of protective role where the son has yeah. sort of almost stepped in to fill the father's shoes in the father's absence um and then the treatment of Connell by his mother which is so affectionate so close so warm but there's something there was something about that set of relations that I was interested in because we do see it across the other novels as well, where the the girl is sort of out she's outside of that set of relations and she's sort of mm. outside there's something very tribal about she's it. She's defending um, for herself. Really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And she's unwanted unliked she sees herself as not being she sees herself as cold as being unlovable and so forth in this way that is clearly a product of her treatment by her parents and within her own family and then that's the model that's the model relationship but the I think in a lot of these novels it's the same in Nisha Dolan's book and the same in Neve Campbell's book but this sort of like early childhood model of relationship becomes the template for the first relationship in each of these novels that then has to be kind of worked through and ultimately ultimately I think the characters all come out the other side mm-hmm. of this kind of first relationship that mirrors this like sort of like not very um not very warm or not very kind of um secure mm. first set of relations that we see yeah and i mean in case in the case of marianne you can't blame her for for being a bit messed up obviously her mm. own life but also 
going through school and being ignored and not having friends and mm-hmm. what that would do to you mm-hmm. as an adult. So you kind of get the sense of, of her and maybe with um, Neve Campbell's book and, and maybe Nisha's as well. They're kind of they're experimenting with relationships. They're trying to see how much they can take or they're kind of like not present. They're like observing what's happening to them. Yeah, yeah. And um, because they're used to kind of, well, I don't know about the background of the other characters as much, but they're used to not having <laughs> sort of the most normal, healthy relationships. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then I don't know who does either. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if if it was all just easy, then that wouldn't be make for great interesting literature. Yeah, literature. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's just so so talented and able to sort of toe the line between very sort of popular fiction in that it's easy to read, but it's mm-hmm. so like insightful and fun and clever as well yeah yeah no I think she has a lot of psychological acuity I think there's um there are things about the novels that are like very easily consumable because they are about friendships romances early romances um but then I think there is something very deeply observant um that rewards reread re-reading and make the characters feel so real as well which doesn't always yeah. happen you don't always I can't I can't always envision the character mm-hmm. I feel like her characters are so like so strong I felt like I really could sense them yeah yeah um yeah well so, I think yeah that's true and I think it's true when you're reading them and I think it's also proven by the roles created in the dramatized version like, yeah it's probably reinforced that as well. yeah they just definitely. seem to come to life so yeah they just sprang into existence and those two yeah. actors were able to especially like the the country boy thing I've, I've I have I've heard other country boys say um <laughs> they really related to that experience of coming up to Dublin um uh when a friend of mine told me that he that scene where he's waiting for the bus whether he's going back to college or going home, I can't remember which way. He's just like, that was like out of his life. Like just that waiting for the bus in, you know, awfully to go back to Dublin. And yeah. you just see everyone, you know, at the at this station. Um, so there are lots, I know that's a very simple like idea, yeah. but it like that kind of feeling lost in Dublin and that the whole Trinity thing. Um, yeah. I think people love in, in, in Dublin, especially reading about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, like, the novel is very, very neat and symmetrical in how it just flips the scene and mm. suddenly Marianne is yeah. completely fluent, conf- yeah. like, confident, conversant in this much more cosmopolitan yeah. society and yeah. Connell, who has been the kind of popular guy yeah. back home, is out of water although he still goes on to like be amazing so it's kind of annoying yeah yeah (laughs) I mean there is something you know like I will say about the end of the novel um if there's something that I didn't find convincing about it it's that Connell is the writer who goes off to New York yeah at the end and not Marianne to me it makes much more sense that Marianne is the one who writes and then goes yeah. To do a master's in creative writing at NYU or yeah. <laughs> whatever. I, I still feel like she will though. I feel like she's still working through her issues. He had quite uh-huh. a uh, not a privileged life at all, but he had a very kind of supportive mum and maybe 
she's going to get there, you know, that's yeah. what I feel about yeah, her. Yeah. Well, there's definitely <laughs> a sense that time. she's getting there, but I think it, it's, it's part of the symmetry of the novel that that's what he goes away to do, but it was the one part of it where, I mean, even my own monosyllabic ex said, sure, how could he be a writer when he can't string a sentence together? But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. but no, I definitely think that Marianne, I think she gets there in the end. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Yeah, it's, I mean, unless it's just sort of disappointing, like, that it's sort of, it could be true to life that she's been through a lot of trauma and she may not get there, you know. And that's not exactly tied up nicely, but it could be that way. That's not <laughs> the happy that, ending we're going not, for. But no, I don't, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> so if you haven't read But the book, actually, it is, you know, like... They do all have happy endings. The novels all have happy endings. So they mightn't be and, happy books. Ambiguous ones. So like, yeah. They're more like, because they're, I guess, because a lot of the characters are young, they can end like that. Going, <laughs> they have the privilege of ending going, who knows what's going to happen? Right. If you, yeah. <laughs> you were coming yeah, later yeah. in life and you yeah, left yeah. it like that. Yeah. Um, like if, it, if normal people in exciting times were, you know, I guess, relationships in their 40s and then you ended it like that. I don't know, That maybe that's very pessimistic. But it wouldn't be as hopeful. That's <laughs> not what I'm trying to hear <laughs> as I approach my 41st no, birthday. <laughs> me too. Tomorrow is my 41st. Oh, happy birthday. Yeah, it's my second um, lockdown birthday. Yeah. But no, what I mean is like, you'd have to like do something else at the ending. You couldn't just be like, who knows what's going to happen in the next, you know. Well, you could. Well... Technically, you can. I yeah. think the idea that you can't is also a patriarchal notion instilled yeah. in women to terrify them yes. uh, out of the idea of leaving their husband yeah. or. Yeah. And I especially like, I love seeing um, older women who are just graceful and interesting and you, especially in the arts you, you see them all the time and cool mm. and um just the idea that you have the option to grow old like that mm. <laughs> is so comforting and um you ha- and it's sad that you even have to think that way but you do have to fight against what society's putting at you that you're over the hill or on the shelf yeah, or anything like yeah. that so um I find that these courses these like the job I'm in now I meet so many interesting people of all ages and I have friends who are like in their 50s or 60s and I have friends who are 30. Um, you literally just did an over the hill gesture <laughs> with your hand there. <laughs> no, I was like, that, that's well, it. Like, you're a body language expert here. It's like a big hump. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> no, it's the best part. It's all downhill from there. <laughs> but... Um, well, yeah, so just before I forget, there was one thing that came into my head when you were saying that, because something that did really strike me in the nonfiction books when I had moved back was how many of them focused on questions around fertility, motherhood, yeah. trying to conceive. Um, I was sort of startled by how raw and how exposing and how confessional um, books like Emily Pines um, and Sinead Gleason's were, and it just seemed, I really felt that I kind of stepped into something that I had been out of the Irish context for a long time. I wasn't in Ireland mm-hmm. um, during the run up to repealing the Eighth Amendment. Um, and there was a lot in the culture that I'd kind of just 
missed out on just by virtue of not being here and not really being in the kind of midst of it for a long time. But um, I just felt that there was something really alarming and kind of personally terrifying about the emphasis on um, on women's struggles to conceive and struggles to give birth here, because mm-hmm. that is a very loaded conversation in Ireland. But it is also something that, you know, in a patriarchy, a woman's value is providing babies or providing mm-hmm. heirs and so there was something about the number of these books as well that I kind of thought was indicative of it seems to me that there's in I mean in the world um not just in Ireland but I don't remember when I was in my 20s and maybe that was just because I didn't care maybe it was because it wasn't spoken about as often mm-hmm. but um it seems that like you know, for me, it just seems like in the past 10 years around the world, there's been so much more of an emphasis on women not being able to conceive and not being able to um, have a child and the age that women, you know, decide to have. It just seems like there's this kind of increased emphasis on like, oh my God, like, am I going? I don't know. I just, I remember, you know, I remember people's mothers having more children when they're in their 40s yeah like my mother wasn't in her 20s when yeah my I was born. my grandma had my mum when she in it when she was 45 or something like that I think. Yeah. yeah yeah like it never seemed to me to be such a kind of hot topic that like you know you mm. were going to be like geriatric mother you were sort of like deteriorating before yeah. your own eyes when you're still in your 30s I just don't I don't remember there being this kind of an issue around women in their 30s being like absolutely terrified by the fact that they weren't going to be able to have children yeah because you do read a lot of that like sometimes if you maybe it's just because I'm hyper aware of it now but you'll yeah. be reading an article and so many journalists are young now because <laughs> like they just seem to be getting younger and younger to me yeah. well that uh, is actually a sign that you're getting older I just say I know, it's it, weird how it happens it like that and I'm like oh my god this person's in their 20s um but the person will be like sort of expressing feelings that I feel that pressure to have child or the child or settle down and that kind of thing um and then I realize they're only like 30 or and I'm like oh don't worry about it you're fine yeah, <laughs> you know yeah and um, but it's, it's it's real to whatever age you are and if you feel that pressure but it just shows how much it actually is out there and yeah um it's it's people's jobs to bombard you with this right so it's no wonder that you feel the pressure of it like it's everywhere you look and yeah um, yeah well I mean I think in America someone called it like the fertility industrial complex or like I'm sure that's like a journalistic term but there is something yeah. about the kind of like the increased pressure to um you know freeze your eggs or start to you know investigate your options or try IVF I mean, I don't have experience of trying to conceive, so I don't want it to sound that I'm kind of blithely, mm. you know, skipping over um, oh, th- people's yeah. experiences and how yeah. important it is to them. But there was just something in these books and again, in the kind of in in the books that are published, the books that are sort of like this is what's this is what's coming out now and this is what's being promoted at the moment. There is there's something there's something that slightly troubles me about the what comes across very strongly as like the real pain and um and it just seems to come across that not having a child is not an option or there's something about motherhood um that is so key to the experience and very definition of being an Irish woman yeah um that it, it really stood out to me 
again, maybe it was like my own, that was what I was thinking about it, that, you know, I was very kind of like sensitive to those conversations, but, um, but yeah, the, the idea of not having a child and still being, you know, a person who is something worthy to offer, has something to offer the world, you know, or like maybe rather than motherhood being like one of a number of things that women do, there's, there's a real emphasis on it that I think is like, of course, it's a legacy of, um, of Catholicism in Ireland. But, um, but I was surprised by the degree to which it came up in, you know, books, um, that, you know, we're by very, very, very accomplished women or very, mm-hmm. um, it's not for me to say, well, why do you want a child? You shouldn't want a child or anything like that. Yeah. But, um, but yeah. But just know that, you, like we should, it's not talked about as much the option of not, and it maybe should be, not that it should be pushed more, but like <laughs> just, just to be aware, like I think Emily Pine talks about it a lot in her fertility journey in mm-hmm. that book and of her essays. And yeah. she said a kind of really interesting thing about, um, like all her life you you hear like the nuns that put the fear of god and they're like that if you have sex unprotected sex you will get pregnant straight mm-hmm. away and maybe you would if you're mm-hmm. nubile fertile young thing but like then she finds when she actually wants to have a child it's actually really really hard mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to like have your calendar out and timing and all that kind of stuff so if i don't know if we could if the conversation had been if it was presented in a different way that like it actually can be hard to, to get pregnant um rather than oh, you can definitely easily get pregnant, so then you feel like something's wrong when you can't. Um, just that was interesting insight. And also then she had to sort of deal with the... Oh, I won't actually go into it too much because people might want, want to read that essay, which is really good. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a very, very good essay. And it is a very upsetting essay to read. I think a lot of people will... I mean, I found it a very emotional read. Um, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think just something that you said there as well, like the feeling of being wrong in various ways is just something that comes up in all of these books or being abnormal or being wrong in um and I think feeling yourself to be sort of flawed as um as a person who can potentially give birth to a healthy child or having a healthy body um but it is something that um it seeps into the sexuality and the sexual experiences um yeah yeah uh, represented in these novels as well to the extent where there's some kind of like i mean i've just started to read megan nolan's new novel acts of desperation but um i see you're halfway through there with the <laughs> here it is <laughs> the bookmark there halfway exactly <laughs> halfway through uh, <laughs> but there's something about yeah, like the sexual experiences uh, that are so immiserating in so many of these books. Um, you know, like normal people obviously has now set the standard for um, how sex can be written about and then depicted in TV shows mm-hmm. as uh, something pleasurable and consensual and uh, enjoyable and fun and so forth. But yeah. um, but. That's not to say that the character Marianne doesn't go through her own experience with a kind of, you know, like a miserable sort of S and M scenario with a Swedish photographer. God, it just sounds so awful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the we, Swedish photographer part alone sounds terrible. But <laughs> yeah, um, and then you know, like this kind of 
immiserated uh, experience that's a kind of like Nisha Dolan's novel I just find it so interesting in terms of form um the young woman in it who moves to Hong Kong to teach English she's sort of she's very aware of the grammar of colonialism she's very aware of herself uh teaching English to these like very small children in uh an outpost of the British Empire or former colony um uh, she's aware of language and its effects, um, what it means for her to be around the world, uh, earning money by earning money that she can't earn. She can't earn enough money to live on in Ireland. She can't afford a home in Ireland, but she can afford to be halfway around the world teaching small children how to speak the language of global capitalism, the language of an administrative language. And and there's and and at the same time she she starts to date a private banker is he an investment banker or a private banker um I don't know what the difference is uh a public school educated english young guy but their relationship is so stilted and awful because neither of them really like each other um and so every chapter it's very cold isn't it like there's yeah. yeah yeah and there's this sort of transactional relationship uh between them she's sort of aware that she's interested in him to observe his social world and to kind of just get as much out of the situation as possible um and she's been very um upfront about with herself about how idle she's being like she's she's almost pushing to see how just how idle she can be <laughs> she's just doing his ironing and everything yeah there's I mean, God, the self-loathing in these. I mean, one of the things that I thought when I was reading all of these novels. And by the way, we are recommending them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is a full they're, endorsement. <laughs> they're great. They're really good. They, no, they are. They all are, are page turners. They, yeah. I mean, yeah. they're great. Um, no seriously they are but it's I mean because what happened to me anyway as I read all of them was just the kind of growing realization you know like these women are all so angry with themselves or the self-hatred at least at Mm -hmm. the start of all of them is so intense you know like they they've been somehow taught to despise themselves despise their bodies see themselves as worthless see themselves as people who either don't yeah. or shouldn't have any needs any but that, like that's what i mean about the interiority of people of yeah. women uh, like if you heard how women talk to themselves i yeah. don't know maybe not everyone does that well it i don't think all vicious. women do but there's something yeah. again it's just the quantity of them that makes me wonder okay you know either only these six women feel like this or yeah, <laughs> or yeah. thousands and thousands more women yeah. who are buying these books also feel like this and think like this. Yeah. And then the anger, the anger that they feel towards themselves that's expressed through, you know, like um, starving themselves or... Um, Swedish... Um, Swedish S&M lovers practice, and S&M, you know, yeah. like having these kind of like dangerous sexual practices or consensual, but consensual in a way that's sort of... Mm, Uh, they don't leave you feeling like the consent has been kind of comfortably arrived at if that's 
I don't know if that's something you can say, but um, but the anger isn't turned outwards. And that sort of made me sad about quite a lot of them because and maybe, I don't know, it just seems that there's something, there's something really individualized about all of that pain being turned in on themselves, that mm-hmm. if it could all be turned outwards against the structures or the systems that have formed them in this way, there would be something more communal in that anger or there'd be something more does that make sense like it's like yeah, seeing... yeah. and I think maybe that like just the fact that um these p- women are writing this way yeah I think it, it's it might yeah I don't know somehow it might be a slow kind of movement yeah of, of getting yeah and especially me um is it do you say Megan I always I can never I say Megan Megan but... um oh which I haven't read yet but the I I she's sort of doing a similar thing of, of accident separation. So it's a, in a bad relationship where she's sort of, yeah. sort of self-loathing. Yeah. yeah. Um, following the guy around and, you know, just yeah. sort of being very honest about. As I haven't finished wanting, it yet, I can't yeah. say if their relationship actually turns out great in the end. <laughs> and he turns into another reformed Connell kind of character. <laughs> <off> to, uh, <laughs> to, to NYU or, yeah. yeah. Um, um, but there yeah. was something like I wanted to group them together for that reason because I thought there is something about a group, a sort of solidarity or a kind of communal aspect to this experience. Thinking about it as an experience that many women have through various forms, like whether that is growing up mixed race in Dublin the 1980s and being treated mm. badly for that reason, um, or whether it's a certain type of treatment at the hands of doctors if you have a kind of like chronic or ongoing illness or um, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason I just there was something that made me so sad about all of these female characters individually taking the kind of burden and responsibility and guilt and shame of Irish society onto themselves and dealing with it alone Mm -hmm. Uh, Shame, yeah, this is a big one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that seems like it can only be remedied by a kind of like uh, a much more social and communal understanding of that and the structures and systems that keep these affects in play. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Maybe that's one sentence that. that doesn't have to be edited. <laughs> No, that's really good. Um, and I, I, you should write about that. Yeah. Uh, oh. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I do you because be, I, yeah. I owe an essay on this to the editors of the Dublin Review of Books. But I just, that's why I'm deferring by constantly now normal girls too at the Writers' Centre with Edna O'Brien and Nula O'Fuelon and Kate O'Brien and Mary Lavery and Maeve Brennan and... What am I saying? Lavery, Lavin, sorry, Mary Lavin. Um, yeah, so I've just been kind of like deferring yeah. writing by going back a generation. But that's going to help you write the essay It as is, well. but I actually want to do number three now. Oh, really? And go what, back. Go back further. Who I would, just, I think Elizabeth Bowen or yeah. um, late 19th, early 20th century Irish women, women writers. Brilliant. Just yeah, to see yeah. how far yeah. back this self-loathing goes <laughs> <laughs> well I mean I mean it must be interesting the one you're doing at the moment just with what Ireland was like then with yeah. censorship and how, like, 
Yeah. Shame around women. Yeah. Woman. Yeah. It's fascinating. <laughs> it's so interesting. I don't know yeah. how, I mean, some of the books I'd never read. I read Edna O'Brien's book voraciously uh, as a teenager. But, you know, there are, because women, I mean, Kate O'Brien's book, The Land of Spices, which I'm reading at the moment, that was written much earlier. It came out, I think, in 1940 or 1941, and it was banned. But, um, you know, Edna O'Brien's book, The Country Girls, was banned um, for obscenity. That's something that these women haven't had to deal with, luckily. Um, but it's fascinating in the case of Kate O'Brien reading the novel The Land of Spices. There's a one sentence mention of homosexuality in it. Mm-hmm. So that's ostensibly the reason that it was banned. But actually the entire novel is a kind of indictment of Ireland in the early the, the early days mm-hmm. of the free state. And it's set in a convent where actually in this novel, the Catholic Church is a very, the order, it's a French order of nuns. And it's depicted as a kind of liberal and sort of civilizing and internationalizing force that comes from outside Ireland and brings with it, you know, like, this tradition of French education for Mm -hmm. young women and so on. And actually that's being replaced by a growing desire for a much more nationalistic and enclosed form of Catholicism. I think just because, you know, it's very accepted as truth these days that the Catholic church was this kind of, you know, it had this theocratic hold over the country, um, It was like a deeply conservative force. And that's true, of course, but this book suggests that actually it was Ireland that formed the Catholic Church in that way or created its own version of Catholicism that was conservative, inward-looking, punitive, um, narrow-minded and so forth. And that the the Catholic Church prior to the state uh, or the formation of the state had been something um, that had a much more, you know, global, it had a global network mm-hmm. uh, or it was an internationalizing force rather than a sort of insular one. And, um, and so that's why obviously the book was, you know, <laughs> yeah. removed instantly yeah, uh, yeah. because she has some very incisive and not at all flattering things to say about Ireland and the Irish um, yeah. as a very, um, you know, she was a very globetrotting uh, limerick woman, Kate O'Brien. And very, very cosmopolitan. So, Sorry, what year was that? 1940 or 1941 that came out, I think. Uh, So it was written in the 30s, uh, Mm -hmm. late 30s. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I forgot what your question was. Sorry. Yeah, me too. But (laughs) that took me away. (laughs) The land of spices. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you you were definitely like another place there. You're going to. You're writing it's, your essay, I can see. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> I know. Actually, maybe I can just transcribe this recording and just turn it into yeah, a few edits. <laughs> um, so we talk maybe about Emma DeBerry's book. Oh, yeah. Um, this book is so good. It's really good. It's just so good. It's really... I was looking through it for, for today and just getting some notes or some quotes and it's just so interesting. It's just so well written and so yeah, insightful. yeah. And it just put, pulls all the information together in such a good way. Like it, yeah. it makes the links for you. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah, it does. You know, at the risk of taking the metaphor too far, 
But I think it is one of the, I mean, one of the metaphors of the book is hair. Um, but the way she weaves memoir, fact, history, sociology, um, political thought, uh, political theory together, it's so, so skillfully done. And mm-hmm. it's something that as... Uh, She's an academic and a broadcaster, and this is the kind of book that, like, she sort of had to invent this form. And yeah. I think form making and form creating is something that's, it's the case in all of the nonfiction books because they are, you know, they're they're types of essays or types of story or types of thinking about writing the self. That um, I think Ireland, there's there's more potential here to kind of come up with like okay this is going to be this kind of book this is the sort of thing it's mm. I don't think the the stress around disciplines seems to be as yeah. present here maybe or or maybe maybe it's changing everywhere but but in Don't Touch My Hair um so so maybe for people who don't know mm. um so Emma grew up in Ireland in Dublin but, but her mum is a white Trinidadian her dad is a black Nigerian father, so she, she talks about... I don't think her mum is Trinidadian. I think her mum is white Irish. and Irish, and I think maybe her stepdad is Trinidadian. Okay. But I think her father... Her mum is white and Irish, and her father is black. Okay, yeah. And then she... So she talks about a memoir of what it's like being one of the only black mm-hmm. kids in her area and in school. Um, but then she, as you say, weaves it with sort of history of colonialism and, and how black hair has been used as a weapon against against black people to make them sort of hate their hair which would have was normally a source of pride and culture mm. and history and um so she kind of it's like she it's almost like she's her next book kind of is about what white people can do next mm-hmm. but i really feel with this one she's um presenting it to you in a really like this is what like this is the history of it. Like mm-hmm. this is what's wrong. This is what's been done. This is how it manifests like in day to day life. And this is why there are like cultural appropriation um, and why that's wrong. And it's just it's really um, informative. Yeah, it is. It's super informative, and it's. I mean, I think so. In the first part of it, as I remember, she talks about her own upbringing and she talks about hair as being one of the ways that she felt herself to be very, very different um, from her white peers growing up in, I think, Rialto in the 80s. Um, And then she extends that to talk about hair as being something, um, you know, that has its own history within the black community, um, you know, degrees of curliness or not curliness and straightness and what's thought of as good hair and what's thought Mm -hmm. of as bad hair. But I think for me, just when I thought it was going to turn into this kind of banal book about optical representation, you know, like about like, Mm -hmm. I never saw anyone who looked like me growing up. And so I felt left out. Mm -hmm. And so I would like to see more people who look like me or, you know, something like Mm -hmm. that, which, you know, there's a place for that argument. And Mm -hmm. again, it's not for me to say, how people should feel about representation. But then she just, so that would be the kind of like girl boss, pantsuit, neoliberal, like <laughs> lean in, you know, yeah. version of the book that sort of was a little bit what I was expecting. But then she just goes completely galaxy brain and <laughs> does nothing less than sort of like 
explain while completely undercutting the entire system of Western European metaphysics since the Enlightenment and yeah, like just kind yeah. of explodes it. You're just like, what? But it's amazing because it is still readable and you're still reading it. And you get the sense it. she's dumbing it down for us a little bit. Yeah. But she's like, yeah, she's she kind of the easy version. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but so she kind of, then she talks about like time, the meaning of time in the West, like how time and uh, yeah. work you know, in our advanced stage of capitalism is valued and how the care of the body and care of the self that's implied in, amongst other things, you know, treating your hair, sitting while people work on your hair. Um, it's the a time social that thing. Involves. Yeah, yeah. Then she talks about like the optical system of representation and how like looks like just the, the, the sight oriented the, the predominance of, um, of the optical uh, in Western society, how things look as opposed to how things taste, smell, feel, etc. That's a Western construct that comes from, um, I actually yeah. can't even remember now where she locates it, but I think it's just brilliant. I mean, it's the kind of book where, because she was and is an academic, but... she an art historian as well? She, she's... No, but there is a there's a really interesting uh, section of it on art and the kind of optical regime of art um, that in itself is brilliant. There's just if she had just written this as her dissertation, it would have I mean, it would have been the best dissertation of all time. But (laughs) it also it just kind of like exploded that category just beyond <laughs> so yeah, yeah and there's like 50 like there could be 50 different dissertations in it um yeah I'm just always shocked as well that like Trinity haven't just made her like chair of the English department or something you know what I mean like yeah. it's just kind of well, like she ju- I mean she was appointed to Hugh Lane for on the I board I saw that and, yeah um, which is fantastic um yeah, I'm sure she's on loads of their boards as yeah, well. yeah 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 but um but it's just such a brilliant book and it really like it is difficult but it rewards reading because you just learn so much and those books are important that place our Western European context and the colonial. Oh, I'm remembering now what the art historical thing is. I think she's talking about the... the. I saw her on some show. Um, this is how bad my memory is. Yeah. <laughs> she was looking at a painting, talking about it. That's all I remember. Um, it was a, she, so I felt, I just, for some reason, I have her connected to art in my mind. So maybe, I thought maybe she's an art historian. Yes, I think she connects painting and a certain type of painting um to the 400 ish year period of colonial exploration i think she god i'll have to read this chapter again but she ties in the kind of Mm -hmm. like the period of dutch painting with the expansion of you know the colonial enterprise around the world and so she she almost puts vision or visually oriented art forms like painting Mm -hmm. into she periodizes them as manifestations and products of the colonial period Mm -hmm. anyway i can't do justice to it (laughs) while i speak but it is it's it's just that you know even i think in the class uh when we talked a lot about the body and how the body comes up in this book and notes to self and constellations and then one of our uh, colleagues in the class Margaret pointed out that even this script on the cover of the book is you know it's this hair the curly hair which is a nice touch by the designer but but there is something about how in all of these books 
the not like the body is doing the writing but the body kind of like takes its own form or the books are formed through these experiences of the body but um but yeah I think you know in mm. conclusion you know this book which is ostensibly about hair I mean it's so mm. it's so much it's, more yeah. and, but never lose it because hair does become this way of just threading through yeah. every, and every it, and section and if you like that to sort of the depressing link as well she definitely has that with her childhood like it's uh, as a young girl who turns inward and hates herself yes. because she's told yeah. you know yeah. her hair should be straight and yeah. she should yeah. be paler and all that kind of stuff yeah no um, you're so right but I do think that of these books this one is possibly the least self-hating yeah because no, she's turning out she's definitely turning out yeah um and she's saying, like, this is why this is yeah. wrong. So not not to disappoint, <laughs> but, yeah, it's, but slightly, little, yeah. it's slightly less self It starts off with a depressed girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, she's so... I can't wait to read her next book. I, I think it's out, yeah. or it's nearly out. I think it's coming out at the start of April, maybe, or... Yeah. I saw something about it on Twitter. Yeah, I think she, I saw the copies she has. And then Sally Rooney, obviously, has a new book, September... Um, they're all probably yeah, working on new books. I can't believe she has a new book already, and I just can't even imagine what it's going to be. I mean, it's I've read what it's meant to be. <laughs> uh, the relationships again. Um, uh, I think it's a group of people, and okay. so it's still, you know, what what she does good or well. <laughs> I'm gonna that she out. does it very good. <laughs> <laughs> she she writes real good. Um, <laughs> this is why I don't write. Um, this is all priceless <laughs> i don't want i've had two coffees I think that might be we it. should be just this should be live <laughs> yeah i think there's probably like four percent of me sometimes when i think about these books and it's obviously a projection and that's what i'm thinking about myself but sometimes i'm like oh, don't be such a sap you know like because there yeah, is you yeah. know there's something that like it's it's an outpouring and it's an almost traumatized outpouring of yeah. something that's been repressed and something that's been held in and hasn't been expressed in literature in Ireland um, to this degree, I think. Yeah. Um, because there is something in the books by the, the older generation of women that we're reading at the moment. They're all, they're sole women amongst men and literature is such a male enterprise at the time mm. of these other like in Nulo Fuedon's books or and in her books heartbreaking is it, it are is. you somebody or can, yeah is that the, it's yeah. fantastic I mean I'd heard it was you know I think I was a little young for it when it came out or I didn't but I really really appreciated it and her writing is so beautiful and again just seeing that you know like she has a terrible alcoholic father yeah. and then her mother is just absolutely miserable and her mother drinks as well and yeah I read that when I was yeah I think probably too young to understand it properly um and my memory of I just feel like she's in a cold house and there's wind blowing and it's dark at lane the poverty and, and she's saying yeah. we're not even that poor but just yeah. Ireland was so poor that the, yeah like the, the bleakness yeah and the emigration and the 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 world of work and the world of literature is a male world that's the point I'm trying to make I suppose or just in this particular instance the the women the women who are writing in an earlier generation I think it was an earlier, I think to be a successful woman writer, there was a lot of, um, it seemed as if they're always the one woman in the company of men. Mm. And there's something about, I think, a particular 
maybe sort of earlier um, form of feminism that involved one woman being successful, being accepted into a male mm. world on the condition that you're the only one. And then I've found a term for this on the internet now, which I love, uh, which is like a, being a pick me girl. Uh, uh, because being a pick me girl online is kind of like saying like, why don't you give your boyfriend a back rub when he comes home from work? Yeah. It's like the kind of thing that according to this definition on whatever Reddit I was reading <laughs> late at night. That's really specific. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a, like a girl or woman who will say whatever it takes to be accepted by men. So mm-hmm. to spend time in the company of men, you'll like put down other women. And I think Jane yeah. Austen has a brilliant line about this somewhere as well. But, but that, um, I mean, that's probably, that would stem from not knowing how to sort of own your thoughts and be your own person and project that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're kind of, you'd have, like you'd have sympathy for that as well you know yeah yeah (laughs) I mean to a certain extent yeah but um I think and this is not a criticism of the um the female writers of you know generations before I think there's much more of a sense in these newer books that these women are writing for women Mm -hmm. not exclusively for women but Mm -hmm. um I don't get the sense that to produce literature now you have to see yourself as being like a kind of you know mini Martin Amos or like I don't mm-hmm. think there I don't think the I don't think the same things are at stake yeah. I don't think your um your success rests as much anymore on there's men's a, yeah. choices there's actually maybe um, I'm deluded no that Megan um Nolan wrote a great article in The Guardian mm. that I like, um, that I really liked. And um, it's about, I might actually read a quote from it. Yeah, yeah. I found it, it was, I thought it was really, um, pertains to what we're talking about. Mm. But so she, she loves um, Carlo V. Knosgaard, um, oh, yeah. who I, I love. I just loved his books. Um, my whole family, there was one point where we were all reading one of the mm. books and um, just passing them around. <laughs> I mean, there's so many of them. I think there might be six. Um, I think it's seven. Is it seven? And, uh, I've dropped it. I haven't read the last one or two. I, so I find it hard to finish anything that, that's that long, um, mm. like series or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. I need to take a break. Um, yeah. But so she, obviously she writes very raw stuff, very vulnerable. Mm. Um, she talks about her own emotions and, and behavior in a way that maybe a lot of people probably wouldn't because it can be embarrassing. Um, but then people love to read about it. You yeah, know? yeah. Um, so she she said um, of of reading Karlovy, um, she said she had this is from her article in the Guardian. I had at that time begun to write essays, which I hoped were literary in style, which which felt cripping crippingly, <laughs> but which felt crippingly humiliatingly feminine in their subject matter. Mm. Unlovely accounts of abortion and sexual jealousy, mm-hmm. the objection of being a woman who desires men. I was struggling towards something, an avoidance of villains and heroes, victors and losers, and a rejection of the idea that female pain was pretty or somehow inherently virtuous. I had the feeling that there was something there worth striving toward, but the embarrassment and yes, the shame was holding me back. And then relating to a particularly shameful incident that he shares, she says... I read all this sitting on my balcony in Athens with my hand to my mouth and appalled tears streaming down my face. 
whether this episode or anything in Knosgaard books actually took place mattered to me not at all, so much as his ability to get inside the essential truth of things. I wasn't just reading an account, perceiving the experiences of another person, but actually living inside them. What he had done was not to merely observe, but to render a life with such precision that I could feel emotions that were not my own as I read it. All my life, events have seemed flexible and unknowable, whereas feelings seemed to me real. They had the dramatic and concrete force that events lacked. I began my own novel directly after reading A Man in Love and took in almost nothing but Knosgaard while I wrote. The grandiosity of his project, his completism, provided me with much-needed permission to go into the emotional minutiae I find most interesting and yet have feared all my writing life is trivial unintellectual and altogether too feminine. It turned out I needed this great chronicler of masculinity to set me free. Um, but yeah, I really just love that because I, I, I do love his books and the way he goes into like the minute detail of, of his every emotion and interior life um, and nothing holds nothing back and just how comforting it is to read that. And um, it was probably a great experiment for him to do and it could have easily not have worked and some people probably hate it but I, I love that kind of writing um, yeah I I think I got halfway through the first volume and I loved it I think the part that I remember or what I think what I liked so much about it was the the recollection of this kind of like youth without internet or there was something that was very nostalgic yeah. for me about the boredom comforting yeah that was borne out by like the length I mean like the fact that it was seven volumes but just that like talking about going to a party and like having a bag of cans hoping the person you'd like would be there having to nothing phone happens and everything yeah. fails and it's and like <laughs> having to call your you know going over to your friend's house and having to sit there talking to their parents while you're waiting for them to be ready or something like that there was something yeah. that I just loved and and then I think it was just at the same time as the Elena Ferrante novels kind of came yeah. out and I just sort of felt I couldn't yeah. read two long series <laughs> of novels no. and pick the Ferrante one ultimately so yeah. it's something I think if I have like a kind of long period of convalescence sometime maybe like I'll, like you know pandemic <laughs> I mean it would have been yeah the perfect yeah. opportunity to read all of his work but uh yeah yeah I don't know somehow I it's funny I thought about reading a book by a man recently I was just kind of like what what, <laughs> what would I do that for and I just I don't know like it just came yeah. into my head where I was just kind of like a man a book by a man do they write books like I just it was <laughs> like amazing. it just felt like it had been such a long yeah. time since yeah. I'd read or heard so of, focused on it as well but yeah it does yeah. seem there are so many um, women writers around and, yeah yeah um, so it seemed like a very kind of like weird old-fashioned choice of a thing to do but I might read a book by a man sometime <laughs> soon if I go on holidays for the novelty I've like, heard they write them too yeah, <laughs> the weird the weird novelty of it um, um so maybe to wrap up um you can tell me a little bit about what kind of writing you're doing or oh yeah yeah sure <laughs> well yes so I want to, I'm working on a, well, I'm working on two things, but I'm trying to put together a collection of stories and essays. Um, so I'm working on a collection which is called Colonialism with Nowhere to Go. Um, and it's the same 
The title of the collection is the title of a story that I wrote and which came out in The Stinging Fly last summer. Um, and so I've written, I think, maybe 60 or 70 percent of it. It's some essays I wrote when I finished my PhD and I moved back to Ireland. I was just kind of writing furiously and I suppose doing everything kind of furiously, just trying to get jobs or postdocs or whatever. And so the writing and writing and writing, it all... T- I wrote a couple of essays, one of which came out um, in the LA Review of Books and one of which came out in the Dublin Review of Books that were both about Beckett. And Beckett, I wrote a dissertation about Beckett. Um, my PhD was on Beckett um, and his novels of possession and dispossession. But I think because of the... The time, you know, when I was writing my dissertation in 2016, 2017, um, you know, I was writing about Beckett's literature, but it was under the shadow, I suppose, of Brexit and Trump and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I started to think of Beckett more and more as having relevance regarding um, um, those who feel themselves to have been dispossessed or those who feel themselves to be victims of maybe demographic change or industrial mm-hmm. change and so on in um, the UK, in the US, here, obviously in the West, I suppose. Um, and so I wrote a couple of essays about Beckett more kind of specifically in that regard in non-academic essays or not such academic essays that were kind of about Beckett and how I use him to understand um our changing world, kind of paranoid fantasies of Western decline, the decline of the mm-hmm. white male as a, you know, um, as a, a source of power, the only, uh, the only holders of power. Mm-hmm. And so, in a sense, they're about the, not the end of the colonial project, mm-hmm. because I don't think that has come to an end. Um, but then I started to write, stories as well and the stories I suppose are coming at the same ideas but from the side of fiction and I think from the side maybe of um I don't know like the emotional or the effective register um and so the story that I published last year is I don't know I suppose it's about romantic fantasies being kind of related to political fantasies through culture or how the medium of culture in, you know, the books we read, the TV shows, the -hmm. films we watch, the kind of Netflix series that we're kind of all soaking into our heads for like Mm. six or seven hours a day. (laughs) Um, You know, like how, how that acts as a medium between ourselves and how we feel and our lives and our feelings and our emotional worlds. And the political structures that we live mm. in. If that doesn't sound gripping, I don't know what <laughs> does. Um, and I read your, the, is it the LA Review? I read yeah. that, um, the, the Bowler Hats and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really nice. Thanks. And you think of Will, Willie Loman as well. And, um, yeah, that kind yeah, of Yeah, yeah. touched on some really interesting ideas there. Yeah, I, yeah, I want to, so I have another story half written and then, so I have this kind of collection mapped out in my head and I'm just trying to find the time to like get more of it. So it's, it's getting there. It's slow 
but sure. And and so that is, it's, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I just feel very, um, very attached to it as I, I kind of have it in my head as a finished book. I kind of know the, I don't know. Um, for me, it exists. It doesn't yeah. exist for anyone else <laughs> yet, but for me, it's a real thing. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, there's a novel that I have worked on a little bit and have been kind of like, but I, I kind of figured that the, the collection would be an easier thing to put out first just because mm-hmm. I've just made more headway with it. Yeah, well, I mean, you're very observational and, and uh, you've expressed yourself very well today with, with regards Thanks. to these books. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on, on that. So you definitely should um, get it done. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will. Thank you. Okay. It is. It's a funny thing. It's like, I think also just because the essays and stories, I think just at the moment, because I don't have this kind of like clear, you know, like, seven or eight month period I mean finishing my dissertation I have to say although it was miserable in many ways it was also an absolute joy because I just had an entire year of just doing that just one thing yeah. and just focusing on that and f- focusing on just adding a little bit more to it every day and then as the architecture of it starts to kind of like appear through the mist and you start to kind of like okay yeah, now I can see satisfaction of, of yeah. not being so distracted by yeah. loads of different yeah. concepts or things yeah. yeah it was great to just be able to say yeah. no to everything else and just yeah. say like no I'm not doing that I'm not writing this I'm not doing that it was an incredible luxury and so yeah. I don't have that amount of time at the moment and so working on it working on shorter pieces bit by bit bit yeah. kind of seems like okay I can I'm just always finished. impressed if anyone can finish anything I think that's amazing <laughs> you know fair play like if you can yeah something yeah I think actually the main lesson of my dissertation was not that I had finished or you know achieved writing a dissertation on this topic or that topic or expertise yeah. in this field but actually exactly that that I'd finished something and that yeah. I'd, I was like okay now I've done something oh my god that moment <laughs> when you knowing. actually send it or hand it in it must yeah. feel like just incredible yeah I actually took a couple of pictures of myself um after sending it off where like I I think I had like a kind of weird face mask on but I was also like sobbing <laughs> so, like the face mask was just all kind of like running down my face and like I'm just holding like a toilet roll that I was using to just like Amazing. mop up all my tears so <laughs> maybe that can be my uh I'll send you that picture for, yeah, yeah, do. <laughs> for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> this is, yeah, with some kind of caveats. A woman who's achieved something. <laughs> um, and yeah, maybe you could come back and talk about Beckett one day. Cause, um, oh, yes, I'd love to. Because I, I really haven't read much of him at all. And, and maybe, maybe you could do a sort of an intro, beginner's guide. <laughs> I love him. I just love him so much. I, I mean, it's funny... Because I thought I'd go through a real period of just hating him after my dissertation. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's funny, even though he's, you know, a very um, difficult writer in many ways. Uh, there is, I, yeah, I just really love him. I, he's, and those photos of him in Paris, he's just so striking and amazing looking. There is that well. too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't my only motivation for <laughs> the PhD. But it's a good it was way, it's a way in. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you. Um, And best of luck with your writing. Thank you very much. You too.